Today's scripture reading comes from Revelation 21, 1 through 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of the heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be with his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he was seated on the throne, said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Again, it's so good to be with you uh, start of Advent. I love this season so much. And you'll see that we're starting a new series today for four weeks. Maybe you go six weeks right in through Christmas, the Christmas tide, the 10 days after, or the 12 days of Christmas, so to speak, afterwards, five or six weeks. We're going to be looking at the idea of heaven, or as the Bible says it here in the passage today, the new heavens and the new earth. And I've never um, preached on heaven before, not consistently. Of course, I've mentioned heaven before, but it's not uh, one of those things that I've dealt with directly. And I've been very blessed to be able to dive into these passages, these beautiful pictures of our specific hope that we have through Jesus Christ. And the title of the series is Age of Gold. That's taken, if you're not familiar with the song, It Came Upon a Midnight Clear. And it's one, from one of the older verses that are not usually used anymore, but I love it. Uh, the verse goes like this, For lo, the days are hastening on by prophets bards foretold, when with the ever-circling years comes round the age of gold, when peace shall over all the earth its ancient splendors fling, and the whole world give back the song which now the angels sing. Beautiful. I think that Advent, or Christmas time, is the best time to talk about heaven. And there's a couple of reasons for that. There's a practical reason. And as we look at the, these passages that talk about our, our hope and what God is leading us towards, um, what we're going to be focusing on is our desires and how our desires are met in this place, this dwelling place of God with man. And uh, the practical reason why I think this is a great time of the year to talk about this is because it's the time of the year when our desires are most evident. I mean, we are starting to be filled with so much desire, desire for satisfaction through food, through stuff, um, which are good things that God gives us. But we're desiring that satisfaction. We have a desire to be close to our families, to have that relational closeness with those who are around us. We have a desire to see or to experience the ones that we've lost. And it's especially true at Christmas, we, we begin to think about them and we start desiring that again. And I think 
these desires are especially true at Christmas, and it's especially helpful for us to think through, well, what is my hope for these desires? What is the ultimate picture? So there's a practical reason. There's also what I might call a theological reason for why I want to study heaven during the Christmas season. And it's because, of course, that we're talking about uh, what is called by Christians, this may be a new word for you, it's called the incarnation, in flesh. And it's the time of the year where we talk about Jesus Christ. He's the second person of the Trinity. He's God Himself becoming man. He added flesh. He didn't change who He is, but He added to who He is, His person, by adding flesh. That We call that the incarnation. And here, we see in the incarnation, heaven and earth connected. Our desires being placed in Jesus, who is the one who is the bridge between heaven and earth. The one who came from heaven. The one who was born on earth, begotten of the Father before worlds began. The eternal God, the second person of the Trinity, but born of Mary. And I love nativity scenes. I love a creche, right? I mean, this is the time. It doesn't matter how cheesy they are. I love seeing nativity scenes. And every time I see one of those, it's a picture of this very thing because it's the most earthy picture. You think about the oxen and the cattle and the straw and the manger. It's the most earthy picture, but above it usually is a star. And you have heaven looking down on this earthy picture because Jesus Christ is born Christmas. This is the link between heaven and earth. So it's a great time for us to think through, well, what is it that He actually brings us to? What is the hope that He gives us? What is it for? So we're going to spend a few weeks focusing on our desires and how our desires are met in Jesus Christ first and how they're also fulfilled in what He promises, the dwelling place of God with man. And there's a first desire that we're looking at today. We're going to look at a number of them, a desire to be close to our family, a desire uh, for, to see people that we have, uh, have known, a desire for um, closeness with God. But the desire that I want to look at today is this. We have all of us, whether we realize it or not, a desire for creation to be new or to be, if you like, renewed. We want, in other words, what is good in life to remain and what is bad in life to fade away, to pass away. That desire is built into us, and it's exactly the picture that the Bible gives us. The Bible calls it a new heavens and a new earth. Look at verse 1 of Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. We have a longing for a new heavens and a new earth. Second Peter 3 verse 13 says it this way, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth. That's the desire that we're going to be looking at today briefly together. Let's pray and ask for God's help before we come to this passage. Father in heaven, we ask for your help not only today, but throughout this series as we 
or go through this time where our desires are so evident, they're just on our sleeve. And I pray, Father, that you would help us by your Holy Spirit to connect those desires to our ultimate desire for you. That you would show us what our hope is and that that hope would be specific. We ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. So one of my uh, professors in seminary, I went to Covenant Seminary in St. Louis, Missouri, and one of my professors was a guy named Jerem Bars. And Jerem was actually... uh, for a time early in his life, he was the cook of Francis Schaeffer. Um, so Francis Schaeffer was a famous writer, theologian, pastor. He started something um, in Switzerland called Labrie. And so this amazing man, and he had a cook, and, and Jerem Bars was his cook at the house where they, where they lived. And, um, and Jerem then became a Christian under Francis Schaeffer, and he, uh, then he became you know, a pastor for a number of years, and then he became a professor later in life. He was one of my professors. And he, he loves to tell the story about when he was a pastor, um, he had this very tangible moment with one of uh, the little girls in his congregation. This is in England. And uh, this little girl that he met, somehow the topic of conversation that came up in a church setting was about heaven. And the little girl was asked, uh, aren't, you, aren't you looking forward to heaven one day? Aren't you looking forward to that? And the little girl said very honestly, I don't want to go to heaven. I want to go to Narnia. <laughs> and Pastor Jerem at the time then said to her, well, if heaven is what so many people say it is, me too. I don't want to go to heaven. I want to go to Narnia. Narnia is, if you don't know, the fictional world created by C.S. Lewis, accessed through a magic wardrobe. It's a world of adventure, a world of beauty, a world of desire. And the little girl said, what many of us think, heaven is unimaginable. And once we start to imagine it, we start to wonder if it will be boring. And we find it very hard to hope in something that is vague. We find it very hard to hope in something that is vague. And what I want to labor to do from this passage this morning is to show you it's not so vague as you think. It's not so unlike Narnia, we might say to the little girl, than you think. Now, why would we want to go to Narnia? We're talking about desires, and we're talking about heaven, so I'm going to be talking about C.S. Lewis a lot, and I'm not going to apologize for it um, over these coming weeks. Why do we want to go to Narnia? There's a great little essay uh, by C.S. Lewis. He's not talking about Narnia, but um, he wrote a, a little essay called On Science Fiction. And in that essay, he, he talks about the different stories that we love, Otherworldly stories, there's a technical term for it, mythopoeic, okay, stories, or mythopoetic, mythopoeic stories, Um, and he's talking about these stories, and he includes, by the way, the Lord of the Rings, J.R.R. Tolkien, his good friend, Uh, these stories like this, the stories that stand the test of time, and they, these are stories that have a feeling of being myths, even if they are modern, and he says, why? Why do we love stories like that? And I would include, of course, his own works in the Chronicles of Narnia. 
Why do we love those stories? Well, C.S. Lewis says in that little essay, no one can pin down exactly why they're so special, but it goes something like this. Those stories take us out of this world while somehow elevating our own world. Those stories take us out of the world while somehow elevating our own world. There's enough, in other words, similarity to our own world. There's enough newness, though, that it elevates it. So think about the opening, one of the first scenes in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when, um, when Lucy, the little girl, she goes through the wardrobe and she runs into Mr. Tumnus, who is a fawn. And what do they end up doing? They start having tea together. Now, this is a British story. This is tea time, just like it's in England. But she's having tea with a fawn, mythical creature. And so it's like her world, and yet it's elevated. He says this is true about these types of stories. And it turns out that our attraction to that is true because, I will argue today, it rhymes with the vision that the Bible gives us, that there is something familiar. There is something great about this new heavens and new earth that we know, and yet there is something different. That's why it's a new creation, and it elevates rather than destroys the world. The specific promise of the new creation, Revelation 21 tells us, the specific promise of the new creation is that everything good will remain and everything wrong will pass away. Everything good will remain, and everything wrong will, be, will pass away. In other words, we are taken, in a sense, out of our world, and yet our world is elevated. I want to show you these two things. Everything good will remain, and everything wrong will pass away. First, everything good will remain. This new creation, this new heavens and new earth, are not unlike God's first heavens and first earth. And you might ask the question, well, why do we need a new heavens and a new earth? Why, why does John, who wrote the book of Revelation, call us to this vision? What's, what, why do we need a new heavens and a new earth? What's wrong with ours? Well, the, the way that the Bible talks about that is that it puts it into, the, into a story in Genesis. In the, in the beginning, the heavens and the earth were created and there's an adjective that describes the heavens and the earth that God uses over and over again. He says that they are good. They're good. Seven times he says they're good. They're very good when it comes to the special creation of human beings. It is good, but you, you may know the story. Genesis 3, there's a change. And this good creation is cursed. There is a rebellion Adam and Eve, they disobey God, and a curse is put on the earth. Here's how it says it in Genesis 3.17. Cursed is the ground because of you. The ground is now cursed. There's something wrong with creation. In fact, when we go into the New Testament in Romans chapter 8, it's almost like the earth is a person. Paul personifies creation in Romans 8 where he says this, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly. It's not its fault. But because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free 
from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. Paul says, this curse spread throughout the whole creation and now it longs to be free. What is it waiting for? It's waiting to be made new. I saw a vision for a new heavens and a new earth, John says, but it's not just in the book of Revelation. This is the message of the Bible, Isaiah 65, 17. A prophecy about this very thing. For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth. 2 Peter 3, 13, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Matthew chapter 19, the disciples say to Jesus, and they're talking about the life to come, and they say, see, we've left everything to follow you. What reward is there for those who have given up everything? And Jesus, even though they're kind of being selfish, he's very gentle with them. And he says to them, they will have thrones, they will rule, they will receive 100-fold of what they have left. And what does he call this new reality? He says, in the new world, in the new creation, in the new ground. Perhaps it's better we say new in English to say renewed to get this sense because the analogy is not total destruction the analogy is resurrection what do i mean it's not total destruction it's resurrection when jesus rose from the dead he had a body before and when he was raised from the dead he had a body still and it was both like the old body and not like the old body Some couldn't recognize him at first, but then others could recognize that it was the same person. In in other words, he had a body like his, part of the curse, but then in the new creation, he had a renewed body, like his body, but elevated. And the promise is the same for us. This is what God always does. He renews. When we Sinned in the garden, as the story just, I just told about the rebellion against God. God does not scrap the whole world. He doesn't start over again. He doesn't wipe the slate clean. He doesn't say, well, that didn't work and start again. He renews it by giving them a promise of, of, of a Savior to come that will crush the head of the serpent. When God judges the world with Noah... Noah, you remember that the evil on earth after the fall, that was a great rebellion, but the evil of, of the earth continued to get more and more, and, and it was the worst time in history, and God needed to judge the world, and he did through a flood. But is even the flood, even that picture of ancient judgment, isn't, is that a picture of God destroying everything? No, it's a picture of renewal. Because what happened after the judgment? The waters subsided. And, and Noah, he, he let out a, a dove. And the dove found a tree. That means after all this destruction, there was still an olive tree. And the waters go down. And the flood goes down. And the ark where they rest, come to rest on a mountain. So the mountains are there. It turns out that his creation is still there. And maybe even all that rain caused creation to grow back even stronger. In the story of the Bible, the picture of the end of time is not a flood. God promises that He will not judge the earth again through flood, but it's a fire. What kind of fire? I would say a renewing fire. 
a purifying fire, a fire that gets all of the other things out, the impurities, the waste and excess, and brings out what is true. The good things remain. Good creation, but also good humanity, good human desire remains. There's three very satisfying pictures here in Revelation of what this new heavens and new earth are like. Look with me at verse 2. I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Three pictures there. First is of a city. The city, the New Jerusalem coming down. The city is a picture of human flourishing, the things that God cares about. Our cities are broken. We know this. We live here. We know what's wrong with them, but we can imagine a good city, can't we? A city represents coordination, cooperation. A city represents a place where we eat and live and play, where things get better. This is our desire when we follow God. Hebrews chapter 11 tells us that when Abraham was called by God, this other patriarch that God called uh, he comes to him and he calls him out of Ur of the Chaldees, out of this place where he's living. He doesn't know anything about the, the living and true God. And he calls him out. And Hebrews 11 tells us, by faith, Abraham left that. What was he leaving and why was he leaving it? Well, he left his inheritance. He didn't know where he was going, but what he was looking for is this. A city whose architect and builder is God. He was looking for a city. The city is the first picture. The picture then gets altered slightly. It's unusual. The city comes down prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Suddenly, the picture changes, doesn't it? And we're thinking about the butterflies and the excitement of a wedding day. A great change fueled by love and excitement and desire. The third picture is a voice calling out in verse 3. It says, look, here's what it's like. It's a tabernacle. The dwelling place of God is with man. The word dwelling place just is the word tabernacle. That is a tent. The dwelling place of God in the Old Testament with His people. The tent was in the middle. All the twelve tribes of Israel were surround, they surrounded the tent, the tabernacle, and the picture was God is in the midst of us. And that is a human desire. When will God come? When will God be here? When will the one who can take care of things actually come and take care of things? And the picture is when there's a new heavens and a new earth, there is no separation between our desire for God's presence and His actual presence. There is no separation anymore. It's a city prepared for her husband that becomes the eternal tabernacle. The dwelling place of God is with man. That's our future hope. But I want you to see, before we move on to the second and final point, that all of these desires and all of these things that are named here, Jesus when He came in the flesh, has already come to do. Because Jesus came down and established a kingdom. 
brought us into the city of God, this new kingdom. Jesus came as a bridegroom to prepare his bride for marriage. Jesus came as the tabernacle, his flesh, his body is like the tent. The dwelling place of God is with man. And he came and he satisfies those desires. And yet we have this gap between what he came to bring us and what is to come. And that gap is what we are doing now during Advent. We're remembering that our desire, the desire of nations has come, but our desires have not been fully satisfied. But Jesus himself is the pathway. Now I know when we start talking about heaven, and this will be true every week, there are going to be some of us who think, what is this just wishful thinking? This pie in the sky. You say everything good will remain? Isn't that a nice dream? How do you know? that everything good will remain. How do you know that you're not just a victim of wishful thinking, of wanting something to be true, therefore assuming that it is true? And I would say there is no way to put into a test tube and to logically prove Christianity is very logical. Christianity is very philosophical. It satisfies that. But I'm telling you that what has happened for me and what's happened for many of us is a different pathway where we look and we say, there must be a reason for my desires. This is what C.S. Lewis himself said. If I find in myself desires that are not satisfied in this world, it must be the case that I was made for a different world. We find in ourselves desires and we think, I want these things and there's a gap between the thing that I want and what I want to be true my experience of what is true. And then we meet a person. Jesus Christ, who is the bridge between heaven and earth. And we think, here is someone who is not just futuristic, not just out there to believe in and have faith in, and he's, he's not just idealistic. He came to earth and he recognized what it was, a cursed place. Cursed is the ground because of you. And Jesus came into that cursed dwelling place. And we see that and we see the, the story of the Scripture says that Jesus became the curse for us. He didn't just say, yeah, I'm going to take you out of this and, and don't worry about this because it's going to be better later. He says, I've got to deal with this now. This place is cursed and he became the curse for us so that when we have faith in him, we have our desires met now and met later. He's the only bridge. It goes in both ways, by the way. He came from heaven to earth. 
We already call that the incarnation. He came in the flesh. He brought heaven down to earth, in other words. But then he lived a life we couldn't live. He died a sacrificial death where he became the curse on our behalf. And then he, he was killed and he was in the grave for three days. And then he rose from the dead. We already talked about that. That is his resurrected body, a new body, an elevated body, a real body, but a true one. And then he went back to heaven. He was raised from the, from the grave and he ascended into heaven. And the Bible tells us that that is our way to God. And it says it specifically in this way. Anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. You are part of God's redeeming work when you have faith in Jesus Christ. And so those of us who recognize we have these desires, we meet a person who satisfies those desires and gives us a hope for a future. It's found in Jesus Christ. What is that future? Finish this point. Everything good remains. Everything good remains. Anthony Hukuma, a great Bible scholar, says it this way. In his redemptive activity, God does not destroy the works of his hands, but cleanses them from sin and perfects them so that they may finally reach the goal for which he created them. This principle means that the new earth to which we look forward will not be totally different from the present one, but will be a renewal and a glorification of the earth on which we now live. You see it? The same, yet elevated. Creation remains. Beauty remains. Hiking remains. Mountains remain. Rainforests, rivers, animals remain. Our work remains without the thorns and the thistles. That's why the Bible says your labor is not in vain. It's not going to disappear. Or to put it again, C.S. Lewis says, all that is fully real is heavenly. It's already heavenly. So we don't say, I can't imagine what heaven will be like. You can. Very specifically, because you know the goodness of God. You see evidence of it every day. You know that the heavens declare the glory of God. You know that there's a beauty in creation. You know that on your best days, that the work that you do is satisfying and good. You know the warmth of a campfire. You know the hug of a child. You know the joy of animals. Whatever it is that is good remains. Here's a simple formula to help you know, will this be in heaven? I get asked that quite often, right? Will there be whatever in heaven? Will there be barbecue in heaven? Did animals die before the fall? You know, people ask these things. Will there be barbecue in heaven? Will there be sex in heaven? Will there be tobacco in heaven? Like, what, what will be in heaven? And I would say, if it's a good thing, here's your formula. If it's a good thing, four words. Yes or something better. Yes or something better. We don't have to look outside of our own experience to imagine an unimaginable heaven. It is found in already what God has called good. But He renews it. And He makes it elevated. Everything good will remain. Number two, as we close, every wrong will pass away. You saw in verse 1, maybe you think this disproves what I was saying. In verse 1, he says, and the sea was no more. 
new heavens and new earth pass away. The sea was no more. Isn't the sea good? Isn't it going to remain? What is John talking about here? Well, remember, this is a vision from John. And the sea here is not the Atlantic or the Pacific Ocean. The sea that he is seeing in his vision is the sea that he's already talked about a couple of chapters ago of the great beast emerging from. This roiling water that in his vision, the beast, the great enemy of God, rises up, but then he comes to the point in his vision that says, that's gone. The sea is no more. Evil is gone. He continues in verse 4, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Tears are gone. Mourning is gone. Crying is gone. Pain is gone. Death is gone. Can you imagine it? It's hard, but you can. Can you imagine everything wrong passing away? It doesn't need to be vague. It doesn't need to be completely otherworldly. It's our world, but without all the things that make it hard. Can you imagine it? Creation without disasters, what so-called natural disasters. The body without pain. The family without drama. Friendship without wondering, what, well, am I more friends with them or are they more friends with me? Like, what is this all about? Work without bad bosses, work without futility, politics without deceit, international trade without embargoes, foreign policy without war, wealth without poverty. It is difficult, but this is the kind of imagination that we're called to cultivate. And God says, this is my vision that I am carrying out even now, because Jesus has come. Verse 5, and he who seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new, including you, because you're the new creation. God has already begun this process. He has already begun to make all things new in His Son, Jesus Christ. It's in the works, and it continues into eternity. I am making all things new. Where did we get this idea of heaven as a stagnant place where everything just stays the same. That's not the picture here. The picture is of development. This age of gold that God brings where peace goes over all the earth. One final story from Narnia. If you read the last two chapters of the story of Narnia, the last battle, if you haven't read it, any of them, start today. Read those, these stories. If you have read them, read the last two chapters of the last battle. It's a wonderful beginning to Advent because at the end of the last battle, after the battle is over, the characters that come to what's called true or real Narnia. There's a Narnia that has been good and adventurous and wonderful, but it's also been corrupted by the witch and by others later. And, and so they come to this place called real Narnia or true Narnia. And there's a character, I won't go into it, his name is Jewel, he's a unicorn. And the unicorn expresses the feeling that everybody is feeling, and he says, I have come home at last. This is my real country. 
I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason, he says, why we loved old Narnia. I don't want to go to heaven. I want to go to Narnia. The reason why we loved old Narnia is that sometimes it looked like this. Come, here's the invitation that he, the unicorn gives to the rest of the crowd, and they, they follow him. He says, come further up and further in. I am making all things new. Further up and further in. And they run. And they find that when they run, they don't get tired. And C.S. Lewis says, well, if you could run and never get tired, why would you do anything else? Love that. Come further up and further in. Come deeper and deeper into the reality of your desires being met. It's not a place that's stagnant. It is further up and further in, into the depths of who God is, which is indescribable. More and more, you see your hopes met. More and more, you find satisfaction in Him. It's not a detachment. It's not a nothingness. It's not a complete otherworldliness. It's further up and further in into what we already know is good, but without everything that is wrong. Let's pray.